Hello, everybody, and welcome into this edition of the Sports Detective Podcast. I am your host, James Williams, and today we sit down with Michael Hanna, who is one of the co-hosts of the UCLA Bruins B-Team Podcast to discuss the UCLA football team this season. We talk about Chip Kelly because it's Chip Kelly's fourth year, and this is the year that, hey, it's do or die for him. What is it going to take for him to save his job? What are our thoughts on how he has done at UCLA? What are some things that he could improve on? What are some things that he could be better at? We also talk about other optimistic parts of the season. What are we excited about? We bash the rivals. We talk about a bunch of Pac-12 stuff. All of that and more coming up right now. Joining us, we have the B-Team podcast, the UCLA Bruins podcast, Michael Hanna, host here right now. Um, Going to talk about the UCLA Bruins football team, talk about the Chip Kelly experience, but let's just start out here, really broad, general question. What is something that you're the most excited about this upcoming football season about your football team? Oh, that's a good question right there. Um, and I actually haven't thought about it from this perspective, but the first thing that came to mind, so I'll just go with it. I guess it's a gut answer is um, the ground game for UCLA. Their running game is going to be so good this season with Britton Brown uh, coming back. He was a stud last year, averaging six and a half yards per carry as Demetric Felton's backup. Um, he's going to be elevated to the top role now that Demetric Felton's in the NFL. And then you have Zach Charbonnet, a former uh, high four-star running back transferring from Michigan to UCLA, coming back to the LA area where he's from originally. And he is just a physical freak. And he is somebody who's going to add just a level of just athleticism at the running back position that UCLA hasn't had in a very long time. So those two together behind an offensive line that's returning all five start starters and their top two rotation guys, like there's going to be some, there's going to be some magic on the ground from UCLA this season. So I'm really looking forward to that actually out of all the things that are going on with this program. That's the top thing for me, for sure. Hmm. Yeah. Those are kind of like it, that was kind of like a weird signature with those Chip Kelly teams is that they're, you, you think of them, it's like, hey, we're spread out and fast tempo. But really kind of the bread and butter that he does is a lot of like inside and outside zone runs. Mm-hmm. And a lot of like the premium players, if you go back to the Oregon era, were just like really fast running backs that were huge playmakers. So yeah, if you're able to have like the blocking and you obviously have the scheme, uh, you know, this is a team that Chip Kelly takes over in what, when he take over 2018, right? Uh, this is his fourth year in charge of the program. I think 2018 sounds about right. If I can do my math or 2017, it's one of the two. Yeah. We're, we're basically comes in. Does, does the, one of the biggest like cleaning houses ever. I don't even know if he cleaned house, but it was at the point where you read about the team and you're like, they have 90 freshmen and sophomores, like 90. You're like, what? <laughs> I didn't know that, that- was ah james that was such a misleading stat though because that was so many walk-ons that they were throwing in there like out of the scholarship players i think that was like half scholarship players and half walk-ons that was that that was and i'm not not to derail the conversation but it's just like i hated the fact that they were throwing that out there because it was just so reeked of excuses at the time and that was actually one of the things that worried me is that i actually the before his first season it was 2018 um before his first season they had tried they there was some article that Bruce Feldman had done for the athletic. It was the first year he was writing for the athletic and he had trotted out that 80 to 90 freshman uh, line. And I was just like, 
wait, where is that coming from? I can do math. There's not that many scholarship freshmen on this team uh, and sophomores on the underclassmen on this team. And once we realized it was walk-ons, it's like, okay, why are you building up this number so much? And we realized it was them kind of laying the foundation to let down expectations. And since then, I've always, whenever I hear that, it's just like, ah, that was them trying to set me up for a fall and I didn't even realize it. Well, it was probably, knowing him though, someone probably inside the program probably kind of fed him that. To where, Wouldn't shock me. Yeah, yeah, where they were like, well, psh, we're rebuilding, bro. It's going to take a while for us to get things going. And now you're looking at here, uh, you're one, Chip Kelly, three and nine. You're two, four and eight. You're three, the weirdest season ever, especially where the Pac-12, like, I think they're, you know, the Big 12, the ACC, uh, SEC, I think when you look back to last year, there's actually kind of a lot of stuff you can get from that. Uh, the Big Ten, I think there's some stuff you can get from that. Like Ohio State was pretty good. I think the Indiana thing wasn't a fluke. I think Northwestern was pretty good. I don't think Penn State as bad as they were uh, was as bad as the record was. Same with Michigan. But the Pac-12, just looking through that, I don't know what to make of what happened last year. I, I don't know what to take away. I don't know what to look at. As a fan, what do you what do you take away from last year? Last year's takeaway from the Pac-12 is that you have a bunch of programs that are jumbled together. Uh, in terms of the combination of coaching level, talent level, and just general competency in terms of running a football program. And some, and there are some that are just slightly marginally better when it comes to the talent level part of it. And that's why they pulled ahead, uh, Oregon and USC in particular. But really, on a week-to-week basis, I mean, Oregon did not impress anybody. They had really one good game the entire year, and it just happened to be the game that they lucked into because Washington couldn't go play in the game that they were supposed to play in, the Pac-12 championship game. Washington, I think uh, they had half of the schedule that they were supposed to play, um, so they weren't eligible to go play. Um, USC was a team that went 5-1 and one last year. They went 5-0 and oh going into the Pac-12 championship game, and out of the five games that they won, there was only two that they probably actually deserved to win. The ASU game, they won an yeah. absolute fluke. And then the UCLA game, UCLA basically handed it to them. And I, yes, I am still bitter about that, unfortunately, but you know, that's just, that's minor petty fandom right there. But regardless of that, um, USC didn't impress anybody. It was the least impressive five and O USC team you'll ever see in your life. So the, the PAC 12 right now is a bunch of teams that are either average to above average, but there's no really cream of the crop. There's no one who's a cut above or can compete on a national level right now. You put USC or Oregon or Washington, the top, what we would consider the top tier of the conference right now up against the Clemson or Alabama. And if you made that spread up to 40, 45 points, I'm still taking Clemson or Alabama. That, like the Pac-12 is not a nationally competitive conference right now, but it doesn't mean that it won't be in the future just because all it needs is that it needs one team to really kind of take the bull by the horns. And at that point, you have an entire region full of talent that's just going to flock there. And at that point, you can build up a nationally competitive program, but it's really just a morass of teams in very similar boats right now, the Pac-12. There's so many directions I can uh, I, I could take from that. But the Pac-12, yeah. I was kind of thinking about it too, because they are, you're right, it is just kind of like a mix of stuff. I really, even, like, I don't know what to make of it, because there's not really, like, if you look at from when the college football playoff, like, started, like the cream kind of rose to the top and it's like Ohio state is dominating the big 10. Like you go through their uh, matchups against the other teams. Like you say, well, Penn state, they're like really the te- second best team in the big 10. They've only beaten like Ohio state one time in the past decade. 
even though they've played them close a few other times. Um, Big 12, Oklahoma, ACC, Clemson after Florida State, like, fell into the dumpster. And then, you know, the SEC is basically just Alabama. And then if, like, LSU all of a sudden has, like, an all-time great team, they can beat them one year. Yep. Um, But the Pac-12, you haven't had anyone rise to the top because, like, USC kind of, like, you know, uh, gets in their own way. Oregon has kind of been like up and down for the most part. Stanford had a pretty good run there with David Shaw, but then things fell off. Washington's still trying to figure things out because Chris Peterson retired uh, like two years ago. Yep. So it, it's just kind of interesting to see who is going to be able to like win the Pac-12 this year. Like, is it going to be, you know, USC because they're probably the most talented. Oregon might be a favorite pick. Washington might be the smart pick. Or could the year four of the chip kelly experience could they catch fire could they get on a run get hot you never know you know it's it's funny you mentioned that because i i'm not going to be so bold as to pick ucla to win anything under chip kelly ever i mean you have to win more than a third of your games before i can give you that kind of you know that uh, that kind of credit but uh, chip kelly being 10 and 21 in his three years at ucla so far but at the same time we are talking about a team that went three and four, but they were more impressive as three and four in my mind than USC was as, as five and one. And I know the records don't bear that out, but UCLA is a team that the games that they won, they won them all by double digits for the mo- I, I think they had one game that was single digits against ASU, but that was a road win at ASU. And then they went, won that one 25-18, I think. And then the other two wins were convincing wins by double digits. And then the other games that they played, the four losses that they had were by a combined total of 15 points. And I mean, that's literally, I mean, that's a ball breaking your way on a weekly basis. And that's just bad luck right there. It's, it's bad coaching, situational coaching as well with what happened with the USC game, not being able to corral a tough return in the last minute. And against Stanford, I mean, not being able to find a way to bracket one receiver and see me with three guys, but and that, that's another issue I'll get. And that's a game that should have ended in the fourth quarter. If there was a spot that was done correctly on a fourth and one play where the refs just botched it and the replay botched it. But I, I'm not here to pick that fight. Regardless, the point is, is that UCLA was a small margin away from being a team that is universally recognized as really good as opposed to mediocre. Now, luck would, the, I mean, the way the universe is supposed to work is if you have that much go against you one year, it's supposed to work in your favor the next year. So maybe this is the year for UCLA where they go 10 and two and all the things they did right last year are validated uh, and kind of enhanced and accentuated by the fact that they get luck in their favor as well. So I'm not saying it's off the table, but at the same time, and there's an argument to be made for it, but at the same time, I ha- you have to see the pr- when you go 10 and 21 your first three years, nobody can give you that benefit of the doubt. That The proof has to be in the pudding. The proof of concept has to be on the field before anyone can really kind of buy in in the way that they normally would for a team that was that competitive on a conference wide level last year, there just weren't enough W's to give people that to allow people to give you that benefit of the doubt. They have to earn it this year. UCLA has not won a non-conference game in the Chip Kelly era. Correct. They haven't won a non-conference game since Leangelo Ball was a student at UCLA. <laughs> That's a heck of a way of putting it. Oh man. Yeah. Just got kind of gotten off to a few slow starts. Haven't won any of the opening games. And this is just kind of, it's basically like the make it or break it year this year for Chip Kelly, right? Like, is it 
is it where he'll get fired if it's another obviously if it's a bad season he's out but yeah. is it the thing where it's like you you just want to see him get to a bowl and kind of step into the right direction or is it like hey we want to be you know one of the top four teams in the pac 12 um i'll go even a step further than that what i'm told is that he needs nine wins wow he needs to basically double his win total his uh all of his Oregon teams won like I think it was like uh I'll have to check it here real quick. I think they all won double digit games. But yeah, they all won double digit games. Uh three of them won 12 games. Yep. And that's what's really weird about this here. And this is kind of like the weird Chip Kelly experience that I thought. And I'm not because he comes to UCLA, you're like, oh, he he knows the Pac-12 footprint, he has NFL experience. He's built a winner before he's played in a national championship game before obviously has had success. So the idea is he comes to UCLA. He should be able to recruit. He should be able to get talent, develop talent and really just kind of steamroll ahead. But it, nothing has really clicked yet. Nothing has really gone his right way. And I just, I can't really find out why, what, why hasn't it worked out yet? There's, there's three main reasons that I can, uh, that I can, kind of summarize it with two or theories what's that i have three reasons too or theories let's see let's see how much we overlap then james let's see this so the first one is recruiting chip kelly hates recruiting he has tried to find ways to cut corners in recruiting and try to he has some sort of philosophy that he's tried to peddle as working smarter but not harder but the problem is is that if you works what they've tried to do is they've tried to find the path of least resistance they are of the belief that if they find a mar- a what they consider to be a talented athlete who is not being recruited by other schools, they can take that raw clay and mold it into something. The problem is with that idea is that it, that is a time-consuming process. That's something that you develop over time. If you're going to have immediate success, you need to have immediately prepared players, and you need to recruit at the top of as much. Even if you don't follow a 24/7 or a rivals list or something like that, you need to go over the most. You need to go after the most obviously talented and prepared football players in your area when you are in an area like Los Angeles, and they have not shown any real inclination to do so, to fight those battles for the cream of the crop recruits. They, they've dipped their toe into those waters a couple of times for a guy like Sean Ryan, who, is, uh, who was the uh, top on offensive lineman in the state in his year, uh, UCLA's current left tackle. But those are unique fits where the player is recruiting themselves to UCLA as much as UCLA is recruiting the player when there's like a connection or a personal vibe or something like that. For the most part, Elite recruiting requires elite effort, and this, this has not been a staff that has put in that effort, and that is something that's flowed from the top. Individually, the, the staffers that UCLA has had under Chip Kelly are guys who have had success on the recruiting trail before. Jerry Azanaro, UCLA's defensive coordinator, recruited Eric Armstead uh, when it recruited him to Oregon when he was the top player in the country that year. He was the defensive line coach under Chip at that time. Don Pelham, the linebackers coach at UCLA right now, was the guy who had the connection to Long Beach and was able to get DeAnthony Thomas up to Oregon. Like these are guys who have had success recruiting under Chip Kelly, but what he's tried to do at UCLA has been to cut corners in recruiting because he has a personal disinclination to do so, to recruit. The interesting, and and it's filtered down that, that kind of just when you don't see your coach, when you don't see the head guy emphasizing it, the assistants, nobody likes to kiss the ass of an eight, a 17 or an 18 year old. No adult is pre-wired for it. It's something you have to 
you have to wrap your head around. And if you don't see the head guy emphasizing it, you're going to become lazy just kind of inherently. It makes sense. You're right on that. Uh, the interesting thing with the recruiting, it wasn't like he was a super good recruiter at Oregon either. Mm-hmm. Like he wasn't getting, like, I think uh, it was either his average uh, recruiting class at Oregon when, when his uh, stretch was there was like, I think it was in the low thirties. Cause I read that in correlation to like an article of like, I think Bruce Feldman actually might've wrote it as you mentioned, as you mentioned him earlier mm-hmm. about like Iowa state, like chances of making the playoff. Cause Iowa state's like recruiting class is like, um, I think it's in the low fifties nationally. Mm-hmm. So th- that was kind of like an interesting thing. I thought it wasn't like he got there and he was able to get all of these recruits. A thing I've thought was when he took over Oregon, he took over for like a longtime coach that had been there for like 15 years. He was just the offensive coordinator there for one year. And then he took in and credit to him. He came in and he took it to like in insane level where they are like they're a legit top five program, like results wise in the country for a four year stretch. And like, you know, Oregon did fall off and really hasn't like gotten back to being that like consistently great since he left. And maybe he's just not like the team builder type. Like I've I've kind of kind of gotten to that same theory with uh the nebraska coach right now scott frost where it's like he might be a good coach but for him to come in and to like try and build something maybe that's just not what he's good at you took the words out of my uh, straight out of my mouth James, seriously because as you were talking my answer was going to be he's not a builder maybe he's just a finisher because they, what he took over from jim mora I, I i do have to say this i can't knock the guy for this he had a full rebuild on his hands. What Mora left behind was a six and six team, but that was a six and six team that was pieced together with Josh Rosen's just uh, blood, sweat, and tears. Because that defense was the worst. The, the defense that Jim Mora left behind was the single worst defense I've ever seen on the college level with my own eyes. And you're including Group of Five, FCS, all that. The, the year that Jim Mora uh, got fired, UCLA gave up 280 yards a game on the ground. Like you, that you almost have to try to be that bad. So what he took over was a team that didn't have a defense that needed to be built and was losing its only offensive player that could knit everything together in Josh Rosen. Josh Rosen doesn't get nearly enough credit in my mind for putting, for willing UCLA to a bowl game in Morris final final year. Cause th- that was not a team that should have made one, but regardless of that, that's a, that's a battle in the, in the past to pick, but regardless of that chip had a full rebuild on his hands. There's no doubt about it, but his approach to the rebuild was, I am smarter than every other coach out there. So if you give me athletes, I can put them in a position to succeed. And what we've seen is that he, Chip Kelly basically tried to come into UCLA and reinvent the wheel and cut corners. And what's really been shown is that there's a tried and uh, tried and tested and proven way to build a college football program for a reason, because that's the way that works. You go out there, you recruit your ass off, you have, you put athletes in a position to succeed and you kind of just, let that cycle roll. You bring in a big recruiting class, your first recruiting class, you put, you have game ready, true freshmen and kind of players who are ready to fill roles immediately. And you build off of that talent rather than needing to develop three, four year guys at a program that really didn't have much talent there to begin with. You can't rebuild on the backs of players who aren't ready to do the building. So that, I mean, if we're going to, that kind of bleeds into uh, when we talked about three reasons, one was going to be recruiting Two is going to be the offensive system that he has. He has not run the spread that he the the blur that he ran at Oregon. He has run a much more, much more of a 
high, not hybrid. What's a multiple offense? It is, it's an offense that it really runs out of 11 personnel, uh, but one running back, one tight end. But beyond that, it's a bunch of pro and college concepts mashed together. It's not the kind of, it's not the blur where you could literally write the playbook on a, on a napkin or something like that. It was, we're going to do what we do better than you can stop it. It was almost like a dare to defenses. You stop what we do because we're so good at these four or five things that we're just going to punish you with them repeatedly. Here, there is an actual sizable playbook that puts a bunch of pro and college concepts together. So he has not been the same blur Chip Kelly that was known at Oregon. It, it, it is a lot more of an NFL playbook, Chip Kelly. Now it's not an, it's not NFL in terms of like the size of the playbook, but in the terms of the multiplicity of it. So it's not the same Chip Kelly that we knew at Oregon as well. Um, and then, yeah, it's the biggest thing. The biggest thing by far has been that they haven't been able to put the right ideas in place on defense because the thing that's dragged them down over the last three years has been defense above all else. Um, last year, the three games they won were games where they held their opponent under 20 points. They, and they scored under 35 points in each of those games. The games they lost, they scored above 35 in each of those, but they gave up more than 40 in each of those as well. So the defense has really been the thing. The offense has come along in spurts to, to the point where this year they're going to have a fantastic offense. But the defense has really been the thing that's held UCLA back these last couple of years because they have not been able – more left behind nothing, and they haven't been able to build on that nothing. It's, just, it's continued to just be a bunch of nothing. They played in one of my favorite games in uh, 2019. The, six, the Wazoo game? The, yeah. <laughs> yep. Must have been like a stressful game to watch. You're like, why can't we stop them? Mike Lee, uh, yes. no. <laughs> yes and no. Because funny thing it was with that game, it really felt like we were – it felt like two things. One, maybe we were seeing the maturation of this offense to a point where it could take over for the lapses of the defense. So there was hope to be had in that against the top 25 Wazoo team. And also, it was just, I don't know, there were no reasons to expect that UCLA could win that game. So it really felt like playing with house money in a sense like, oh, we're going to be the top 25 uh, Wazoo team on the, at the Palouse? Oh, yeah, cool. That's awesome if we can do it. The fact that we kept it close, though, was kind of amazing given what had happened in the weeks before where we hadn't won a non-conference game before that game. So from a UCLA fan, it's almost you come to expect the worst, and when you kind of see something resembling the best, like, oh, hey, that's kind of, oh, that's cool to see that again. I'm sorry. I'm looking at the box score that gave now. Anthony Gordon. It's ridiculous. He threw nine touchdowns. And he lost. Yeah. <laughs> threw nine touchdowns. It's amazing. It's, it's genuinely amazing. But uh, kind of your second reason, it's in the same vein of vein as mine, where maybe he came in in Oregon and just kind of was an innovator and mm. like changed things up and was like, we're going to run this weird system that's like, based on like uh, athletes in space and big plays and RPOs. He also had a thing too, uh, where he came in and th their diet and nutrition and their stretching and all of this different stuff with science, like that they're doing with health and training. It was just revolutionary and no one else was doing it at that point. So kind of like another theory I had was that just maybe he's coming back basically a decade later and the game's caught up to him and people know more what to expect for him. And more people are up there on the training and the nutrition and um, sorry, zoom just wanted to give me a gift. I don't know what that is, but, cool. but yeah, just like, maybe, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that was. Uh, 
maybe maybe the game's just caught up to him and he's just you know more of an average coach rather than like you know where, where he where, where everyone's kind of like in another way like caught up to him I, they've definitely caught up to what Oregon did on the margins because everyone's adopted that since then. The sports science stuff is ubiquitous now in a way that it was not before. So on the margins, people have definitely adapted to and caught up with what Oregon was doing at that time. But I still don't think they needed to come in and run the offense that they have and the defense that they have. The defense that they've run has was very has been very passive. And last year they went the complete 180. They went very aggressive. And there were games that worked and games that didn't. Yeah, I read about that. Yeah. And then on the offensive side, at the end of the day, I, I feel like if you are Chip Kelly and you're coming back to college, you can come in with a preconceived notion of, yeah, they've caught up to me, so I'm going to do something different. But if I've had that much success doing something, I would, I, maybe my brain is just wired differently, but I would just be like, I'm going to ride that horse into the ground until it kind of just breaks down. You know what I mean? If the fur works so well 10 years ago, yeah, maybe people have caught up to it. But at the end of the day, I was so good at implementing it. It wasn't just that the concept was different. It's that it was the implementation of it as much as anything else. Cause I could have a great idea. If I don't know how to put it into place, then it's, a, then it's a great idea. That's just going to get lost in the handles of history. But if I know what I'm doing with it, that is when it really becomes something special. So if I knew how to run it that well at that time, maybe I try my hand at it again. I, 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 I if I have a proven track record of success with something, it doesn't really make sense to me to fully discard it until I've kind of given it a go again to see that hey, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe people haven't caught up. Maybe I can still find, maybe I'm not going to be winning games by 40 points, but I, if I win games by 20 points, it's still winning. So I, I was surprised that he went fully against the blur in a way that, in the way that he did fully giving up on it rather than finding ways to incorporate it in spots or kind of having it be the majority of the offense. It didn't need to be the whole thing, but the fact that he fully disavowed it is the thing that kind of shocks me. Well, I'll give you my last theory here. Go for it. Was when he was at Oregon that first time, like Oregon, like even if you want to take it a step further with things that they were doing that other people weren't doing, what they did with their uniforms. And, and I mean, that might not have been like him a hundred percent of the way. Cause you know, you have the Nike connection in Oregon but I just know this is like every kid that was like a teenager at that time, everyone wanted to play the NCAA football game and have, you know, have Oregon in these like flashy uniforms, which it's gotten to a point now where they just look like traffic cones or whatever that, yep. that Oregon state game where it was like the green reflectors were so orange reflectors was really hilarious, <laughs> but, but that was like a really big thing. And people like wanted to go there and they were like this cool, fun, flashy team with all the big plays and all the athletes, the Michael James, the Anthony Thomas, all of these guys. And then I think a thing to my theory, I think going to the NFL really just kind of like not, not necessarily tripped him up or anything, but it, it just leaves kind of a bad taste in everyone's mouth where you know, he goes there and he's kind of, you know, is known as this guy that likes to sniff his own farts. He thinks he's smarter than <laughs> everyone else. He's trying to come and like change the NFL, kind of how he changed college and he's putting in all these different systems. And he pretty much just left both places where he's at, where it's like, it's at the point too, where he had the joke for one year where two places are paying him not to coach. So yeah. I think that's part of it where like people, you know, he, it's just not as, it's not as cool to go to UCLA Chip Kelly as it was for Oregon Chip Kelly. 
there were a couple things with Chip Kelly at Oregon. The first of all, I, the uniforms were all Nike because you see the way Chip is now, and you, this is the real Chip Kelly we have at UCLA. He's so stodgy. He's so stodgy. Like there was nothing. There's uh, I. I, I I, I'm sorry to say this about the guy. I don't know him personally, but there's nothing that really seems cool about him. It was only an image built up by a PR machine. <laughs> I don't think he'll listen to this. Yeah, he doesn't seem like yeah. the biggest uh, fashionista. No, not at all. And then beyond that, with um, his first recruiting class at UCLA, he was actually able to do quite a bit of salesmanship uh, in terms of like his the best Oregon class. connection. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, he kept Dorian Thompson Robinson on board by telling him, I look at you as my next Marcus Mariota. That was something that played at that time. Uh, there was, he could do a lot of selling of that Oregon stuff. His, um, his first class, I think, was, his top, was a top 15 class. I think it was 19. Or 19. Okay, top 20 at the very least. But it's higher than he's had. It's the best, highest rated class he's had at UCLA. Um, a lot of it was holding on to Jamora guys, but a lot of it was cutting people loose and just kind of being like, I'm going to bring in guys who are better because I can sell them on the fact that I was Chip Kelly at Oregon. And there, as time has gone further away from that and he has to sell his record at UCLA, I mean, you can't sell that. You can't sell 10, or it's very hard to sell 10 and 21. It's almost impossible. So UCLA has natural advantages that other schools just will never have in terms of the the geography and the fact that there are kids who always want to stay in LA. But at the same time, they've done a whole lot of recruiting out of state trying to sell the idea of L.A. to kids rather than recruiting on their own record. So, I mean, at the end of the, you can sell L.A., but you can't sell 10 and 21. Let's play a game. So, I, I didn't prepare for this, but uh, let's say that you're Chip Kelly and I'm a recruit. Well, what's your pitch to me to come to UCLA? Right now, what is my pitch to come to UCLA? Sure. Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh. You can do an impersonation if you want. Oh, no, I, I would be terrible at that. Um, let's see here. My pitch to come to UCLA right now. Uh, UCLA is the number one public school in the country. You'll get an elite education. You'll be coached by guys who have NFL connections. You'll be in an NFL offense. Um, if you're on the offense side or on defense, you'll be coached by – you'll have guys at all three position levels who have NFL experience. And our intent with our sports science and our nutrition is to get ready pe- people ready for the NFL and have them educated for life. And that's what you should come to UCLA for. Nowhere in there can I mention my record on, in three years at UCLA. But I can talk about generalities. You should have, like, said we have this, this special formula, these special supplements that we have only at UCLA from our science department that are going to make you a superhuman. <laughs> Just go the full Deadpool Wolverine route. Just go, just go a full like route where you're just like, like the person's like, what? <laughs> just like really confuse them. But yeah, uh, but nope. yeah uh, we have filet mignon on our training table. Maybe that's the way I should have gone. Hot girls there, Southern California basketball school. You might see Kareem Abdul-Jabbar once. Um, oh, you'll see KD, you'll see LeBron, you'll see Westbrook on campus. Yeah, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You'll see you'll see guys that didn't play for our team on our campus. <laughs> oh, no, but no, but UCLA is a place where people come and train every summer. Uh, we had Odell Beckham, we had Tom Brady, we had Cam Newton on campus a couple of years, like the last few months. Like, uh, you know, people come to UCLA, they train during the offseason for sure. Mm. Yeah, I also... You can't get that many other places. I also wonder, too what would happen if chip kelly never left oregon 
because the momentum that he was building there, maybe he would have like flamed out in like seven or eight years. But I guess that's um, kind of the argument that like I would make or, or the, the reservations I'd make to a coach that wants to go to another program or go to the NFL and make money. Cause I mean, the momentum that he had, like, those were the best, that's the best four year stretch of like Oregon's like program history was oh, that yeah. four year stretch. And I, I had it up here a minute ago, but like, no, there's you- something to be said for the idea that the grass is not greener on the other side where most often, if you have something really humming in one place, stay there and keep it humming. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I mean, how, how much does legacy matter to you and what you'll be remembered for? And if you're able to like stay at Oregon for like 15 years and win 10 Pac-12 titles, and I mean, every other Pac-12 team wouldn't want this to happen. You win a national championship, like you're, you're a god on the Oregon campus and they might build a statue for you or something. I don't know. That's stuff that like I think matters to me and matters to fans, but maybe it doesn't matter to like people that, you know, for some people in sports now. Chip Kelly is such a football nerd. If he had his druthers, he would stay in some sort of like meeting room and draw plays for the rest of his life. I, 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 recruiting, he just does not like. I, that, I think that was the thing that he wanted to leave Oregon for above all else, the fact that he would not have to recruit anymore. But even beyond that, I think the reason why he was so drawn to the NFL, and I think why his spiritual home is the NFL, is because he sees more of a purity of the game there because you can focus on the game at all times. Um, the players obviously have their endorsements and all that kind of stuff, but on a coaching level, you're coaching 24 hours a day. There's no other real distraction. There's no boosters. There's no recruiting. There's no real pomp and circumstance around the NFL. It's coaching at all times. And for somebody who considers themselves like a football mad scientist professor type like Chip Kelly, that appeals to him so much more than what the college level has to offer. And so I think he wanted to be challenged by that. And I think that if he had the opportunity to go back, if he was by some miracle able to turn around UCLA these next couple of years and have a streak of success, I think that if an NFL team came calling, he would go straight back because at the end of the day, then he would go back to the, what he consider football purism. Or he'll just uh, flame out at UCLA and he'll be Alabama's next offensive coordinator. Oh, he will, he will be, there is a 100, there's, let me, let, let, there's nothing that's a hundred percent chance. There's a 99.9% chance he will be an analyst at Alabama. If he, if he ends up getting cut by UCLA, no doubt about it. It's, he'll, he'll be the person that pushes Nick Saban into retirement. Oh, I, I mean, it's funny, actually. I mean, did you read the story on The Athletic this week about how Alabama's offense came to be? No. I saw Excuse the me. story. I didn't read it. Excuse me. Um, a lot of it was basically Saban saying that college and the NFL are going in a certain direction that was shoved in that direction by Chip Kelly. So let's start to adapt a lot of those ideas for ourselves and kind of co-opt them and do them better than everyone else because we have better talent than everyone else to do these things. So there's a huge amount of Chip Kelly influence, even at Alabama. I think that they, even though they have egos of similar sizes, I think they'd be kindred spirits in the way that they kind of nerd out on football. So I actually think it, it, that is a partnership that could work. So the Pac-12 made Nick Saban. So the, the Pac-12 is better than the SEC. Pretty much. That, 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 that's, I think that's the natural jumping off point. Absolutely. Maybe this is the year of the Pac-12. You had March Madness. Maybe you guys just all of a sudden just come in, upset, upset LSU, UCLA. As, lo- as long as it's not USC, I'm fine with whoever else wants to do it. 
USC just comes in and, you know, just disappoints like they always do. Um, They're, they're incapable of upsetting a good team because they have a certain coach who is not at that level to do so. So, you know, and long may he continue. He he has built, he's kind of like, uh, did a little bit with like what Tom Herman did at Texas where he, he got them some talent and kind of built them up, but haven't been able to really clean up the tiny little mistakes where it was like, I, I watched them like probably, they're probably the most uh, watched out of all the pack 12 teams. I probably watched them in recent years more than any other. And you're just kind of amazed that they just shoot themselves in the foot. And like they're, they're they go into every game basically. And they're more talented than everybody they play. Yep. But for some reason they just can't figure it out because they have a nice guy. I mean, I'm not trying to trash the idea of a nice guy. I try to be a good guy, but at the same time, like he was hired because he was the nice guy and he was something that Lane Kiffin and Steve Sarkeesian were not. And apparently being the nice guy plus having enough talent to float you to nine and three, eight and four every season is enough to keep the USC job right now. And that's why I'm fine with them keeping him for as long as they want to. Lane Kiffin's a good guy. He's funny on Twitter now in a way that he wasn't before he was, I mean, I, I don't know where you go, where you guys go with this stuff on the show usually, but I, I would refer to him at his, when he was at USC, he was definitely a piss ant. Like he was just, a, he was a douche. <laughs> he might still be, but he's a, he's a clever one now at the it, very least. I definitely agree with that. I just, I'm all in on him at Ole Miss. I want him to just be like a SEC disruptor. Oh, I would love that. I would absolutely love that. And And now that he's, I mean, now that he's single in Oxford, he can kind of run wild there in a way that he couldn't at USC or in Tuscaloosa when he was married at the time. So he's single. Oh yeah, they got divorced a couple of years ago, I think. Oh well, that's, maybe that maybe that's what he needed. <laughs> needed the shackles off from the marital perspective. That's what that's like a good correlation to when he like really started like taking off as a coach. In a lot of yeah, ways. yeah, he's finding himself more. He's at the level he should be at right now. He was, it was too early for him to be at USC, but he was better than FAU. So I feel like Ole Miss is like a solid place for Lane Kiffin right now. Yeah. I've, I've never understood his career. I've never understood it. Like he's in Oakland and then he's like in Tennessee and then he's at USC. He's just kind of floating around. All of a sudden he's the offensive coordinator at Alabama yelling at Nick, you know, getting into fights with Nick Saban. Then he's at FAU and now he's at Ole Miss where it actually seems right. But yeah. and Ole Miss is the kind of program that's kind of like feisty and upstarty and he kind of fits that mold so no he's, he's a good fit there right yeah. now oh I hope they get Arch Manning oh that'd be amazing yeah but I, I can't see the Manning family wanting anything to do with Lane Kiffin unfortunately but I can't see him at LSU where would he Ole Miss, end up Ole Miss is the Manning school it is that's the Manning school like Peyton was the outsider that went to you know he brought shame upon his family going to oh, yeah. Tennessee yeah, yeah, no, no, they, they the, uh, if I remember correctly from what I, I've been down there a couple of times from, I, I think I was telling you before I'd done some uh, traveling in SEC country, um, the speed limits on the Ole Miss campus are 18 and 10 in honor of Archie and Eli. Yeah. Yeah. Uncle Eli just goes to Arch. It's just like, Hey, if you want to be like me when you grow up? Oh man, he's going to end up at Alabama, isn't he? <sighs> no, I mean the, the, the scary thing that I could see is Texas. I just can't see Sarkeesian connecting with that family either. Like if David Cutcliffe was at Texas as the QB coach, then maybe, but like, I just don't see Sarkeesian connecting with that family. I don't see Orgeron connecting with that family. They're very like old South, like elegance and stuff like that. Like I see Saban being able to reach them in a way that other coaches can't. 
but the Mannings are good. Or like Kirby Smart or somebody like that. Saban is evil. Maybe Florida? Dan Mullen? Quarterback whisperer? Oh, Dan Mullen is a, like, they know Dan Mullen from his time with Urban Meyer though. That like that, that dude is, he's got, he's got axes to grind with the world. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. That'll be maybe, honestly, maybe Clemson, maybe Dabo. I, like I could see Dabo actually connecting with that family. Clemson needs to take a break. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they need to take a break. They, they just, yeah. need to, Dabo needs to chill for like four or five years and then he can come back. <laughs> Man, I did not see that one coming with him. I'm not going to lie. That That's probably the most shocked I've ever been by a coach's success is that was winning. Well, it was really weird because like Florida State falls and then Clemson just like takes their spot. Like they just fill right into their role there. And like really their success is kind of from their quarterbacks. When Deshaun Watson goes goes on his rise, that's when they really succeed. And then Trevor. Oh, Lee. yeah. And then I was like, uh dj ugalale uh who, who's their next guy i was like went and read but i'm like well this guy can't be that good right like they can't like it's gonna be a drop off and then you i read his like high school like uh scouting report and he's like a five star and it was like the most perfect scouting report you could write for someone where it was just like there was nothing bad he's like oh he's athletic he throws the ball great he's got a great presence he's got great footwork good technique like perfect like body and i'm like god dang it they have another one and it's uh, funny, they, they pulled him out of USC's backyard because USC got the commitment from Bryce Young at Modern Day, and DJ was an hour down the road at St. John Bosco. He got a, committed to Clemson, and Bryce ends up going to Alabama. And USC was just kind of left in the lurch that year. Mm. Yeah, Ugalele, if USC had offered him and seriously uh, like recruited him, he would have committed like the next day. USC was his dream school his whole life. Mm. Chip Kelly to Bryce, again. Uh, uh, for, no, for uh, Bryce Young, his dream school was UCLA because his dad went to UCLA. But UCLA never offered him. They said he was too short. They offered him the end of the senior year. Dang. And by that time, he'd already committed to USC, and he was already considering Alabama. And around that's when UCLA is like, "Oh, by the way, we kind of like you now." It's like, "Come on, dude, really?" This guy was flashing talent his entire high school career, and you wait till like midway through his senior year to offer him. That's just like you're disrespecting him at that point. You're like mocking him. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about. We talked about the Pac-12 a little bit earlier. Um. What do you think is the most take take your UCLA bias away? Just in general, what is the most annoying Pac-12 fan base? Most annoying? Pac- oh, that's ASU without a question. Arizona State. Oh, oh yeah, it's, it's not even close. <laughs> it's Arizona for basketball, and it's ASU for football. Ooh, Arizona! Some Arizona hatred. It's nothing to do with the state of Arizona. It just happened to work I wasn't out that way. This. No, no, no. Arizona fans for basketball are just on a different level. They're the most annoying fans of all the Pac-12 fans. But football, ASU fans rightly, I think, have this belief that they, I I don't know, they they have, they project this air of a team that has a trophy cabinet that's way more full than theirs actually is. Mm -hmm. And they should be better given all the circumstances or the context and the circumstances surrounding that university and the the kids that they can get in there, the women they have on campus, the relative ease of academics there relative to other schools like Stanford and Cal and UCLA in the PAC 12, but they've never really taken advantage of it beyond like what one year with Jake Plummer. And then they had one year where Taylor Kelly under Todd Graham caught fire. And beyond that, they've never really been able to be as good as, 
they should be. And I can say the same thing about UCLA, but the difference is, is that UCLA fans in general are beaten down and are way more negative. ASU fans are of, like they get angry when you don't put respect on their name and all that kind of stuff. And UCLA fans are just like, please pay attention to us. We promise we're not as bad as we actually think we are. Like UCLA fans have been so beaten down by such bad luck over the last, basically since the Miami game in 98, that they right. don't have the ability to peacock in the same way that ASU fans do. ASU fans do it without actually realizing how they're perceived. Wow. I, 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 this is why we have people on from all over the country. I have like my, my brain just changed on how, cause I mean, I, I'm in Iowa. I'm like two times I, away from all of these teams. I just like turn them on at night when I'm like, you know, barely awake from like watching college football from like 11 AM to like, you know, 1 AM. And I'm just yep. like, why is, why is Washington state scoring every 25 seconds? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. No, ASU bros are a very real thing. So you're not firm for Herm? No. <laughs> what in the world? <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I, no, no. That, that, is, that is an implosion in progress over there right now. They have an interesting team, though. I, I could see them. Like- they have a very talented team that has a coaching staff that might not all be there in the next two weeks with the scandals surrounding them and all that kind of stuff. They've already had three of their position coaches suspended. Ah, oh, they'll be fine. The I, I don't know. The NCAA like, has no teeth right now. Absolutely. But at the same time, I just, they're armless. They don't have any arms. No, right. <laughs> they're limbless. Yeah. Um, they can I run. Just, I, I just, I don't know. I, I, I feel like when, I don't know, you have those eyes of the, you have that kind of scandal brewing. It just can't be good for the environment of a locker room. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably, I I think a lot of the stuff with the, at least these recent scandals, it's like, if you win, people will tolerate it. I don't know if it's necessarily the worst thing for the locker room. Like people are trying to make a big deal about like Nebraska kind of had the same thing happen recently where it was like, they were practicing when you weren't supposed to be practicing because of COVID. And I'm like, no way. They were the only big 10 school that wasn't doing that. Like Mm -hmm. no way. And they won like three games or whatever they did. So I I think it was a little overblown. I mean, that's just kind of how I view all of these things now. Um, No, the NCAA has definitely basically checked out of, and there's no need for them with NIL. Now there's no need for the NCAA to, for their enforcement arm or whatever. But I don't know. There's a difference. There's a difference between recruiting on the margins and literally ignoring protocols meant to mitigate a global pandemic. Like I feel like there's degrees to this stuff and ASU just, this is why David Shaw was coming out on the record, criticizing ASU, something that coaches just don't do because he's just like, he was just appalled at the fact that like, really we have a pandemic and you think your minor recruiting visits are really more important than people not spreading a disease. Like to, to me, it blows my mind that that's, that's, that's a different level of arrogance in my mind. I don't know. I don't know, mm. but call, I'm not saying that football coaches are the kinds who you would expect to be savants of public health necessarily, but at the same time, they live in this world, the same as the rest of us, don't they? Supposedly. Some ways, some ways and in others, they're really checked out from it. Right. Yeah. Um, but no, no, ASU bros are a very real thing. Herm, I don't know how much longer that's going to last. 
Um, if you're going to ask me for a second place in that race, I actually get along pretty well with most other Pac-12 fans. Uh, Utah, Colorado have pretty cool fan bases. Arizona football fans are fine. Um, USC has their elements of kind of arrogance, but they've earned it on the field in some level, to some extent. So I can't knock it too much. Don't ever let them hear me say that. Um, Washington is generally Washington. Oregon, probably. Oregon, the level to which they will overlook Mario Cristobal's faults. Because, I, I mean, they're generally doing okay. But if you're recruiting on that level, you should be winning more in a conference that is this like jumbled up right now. That is there for the taking. You should be winning more if you're recruiting the way Oregon is. And there are obvious faults there with Mario Cristobal as a coach. And if you mention any of them to an Oregon fan, they will immediately become super defensive and they will kind of, they, they want to scrap at that point. So they've started to take on a little bit of that persona as well. Yeah, I was, I really wasn't, uh, maybe other, maybe every other team says UCLA and you just don't know. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, our fan base is just so not toothless. They're so mild in my mind. I just don't see them doing the things other fan bases do. I don't think we care on the level that other schools care. So we don't do things the way other schools do in terms of being fans. Mm. All right. Now it's time for at least my favorite segment. I don't know if the fans think it's the favorite segment, but it's my favorite segment. Bash the rival. USC. Oh, shit. Just USC. What, what, what sucks about them? Um, they dress like Ron McDonald and they're proud of it. Um, let's they copied see what else. The uniforms from Iowa state. Did they really? See, I know Iowa state says like, I, I would say it has like different tints. It looks better on Iowa state. Maybe I just don't hate Iowa. State, so I don't think of them the same way. I don't know. Um, maybe that's what it is. Um, no, uh, USC is the only fan base in the country that literally has a subset of fans that calls themselves arrogant nation and they're proud of it. And I feel like that just says so much about USC and what it is. Um, they, they are, I mean, oh man, if I, if I began to unload right now, like, do you want me to go guns blazing? I don't even know. Um, they are the school that tried to buy up any send any parcel of property around them because they so despise the notion that they are a rich person's finishing school in the middle of the ghetto that they are trying to de-ghettoize the ghetto and get rid of that part of the stereotype they're trying to gentrify everything mm-hmm. um just coming in just bucket loads of money to try to like make the area around them seem a little bit nicer so they don't have to be as embarrassed of it as if that's something to be embarrassed of um yeah it's it is just it's the school that stereotypically send it's where kids from newport beach and laguna beach go to be polished off for introduction into a back slapping and uh kind of insular business world in southern california and if you exist outside of that ecosystem then you really aren't made for usc they were the the college admission scandal too college which one is that the the Lori laughlin one right Oh, that, oh, that one. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, that was, uh, UCLA got a little caught up in that, but not to the level USC was. Mm. USC was on a whole different level. And that. really of all that, uh, like of all the schools that you're going to be trying to like buy your way into, you really don't need to do that with USC. You literally just, the money that you're spending to try to gain admission the right way, you can just go endow a scholarship or name a building after yourself. And you're into the school at that point. Why are you bothering yourself with, 
illegal like manners of do- like at USC there's a perfectly legal way of buying yourself in a university it's called endowing something everyone does it it's the only way- reason half the kids that go there get in there mm. so anyway mm. yeah USC is what it, it's exactly what it's cracked up to be that's all that's the best way I can put USC everything you think everything you stereotype it as it is wow wow that, that's a great way to end this um Michael, thanks for doing this. Do you want to tell us where we can uh, listen to your podcast and uh, follow all of your stuff? Absolutely. Um, So um, our podcast is, um, we are the UCLA B-Team podcast. We are part of the What's Brewing Network, a a series of UCLA podcasts that all publish on the same uh, podcast feed. Uh, We also have the What's Brewing Symposium and the West Coast Bias shows as well. So you get three for the price of one by subscribing all to the same podcast feed. different hosts for each show as well. So you get different perspectives about everything. Um, West coast bias is more of like a macro pack 12 West coast sports. Look at things. Uh, the West Bruin symposium is a bunch of friends who went to UCLA and were in the dorms together. who kind of like have like that, like buddy talk about UCLA football. Um, our show, the B team kind of goes on a more granular. If you want to go so far as to say nerdy level, we talk about X's and O's and all that kind of stuff, but, but we also do kind of like keep it light as well. Um, we do kind of look at things from a like macro perspective, all that kind of stuff. Um, so you get different perspectives on UCLA football from all three, all on the same newsfeed. Um, it's, it's a really good bang for your, I was going to say for your buck, but you Hillary just hit subscribe and you know, you're there. So, but it, it's good value for your time at the very least. And, um, yeah, um, I highly, I, I'm obviously biased, but I do recommend it because I know everybody involved with all this stuff and everyone does fantastic work. Um, I'm on uh, Twitter at Michael M. Hanna personally. My co-host Nathan for the B team specifically is at side out par. Our show specifically on Twitter is at UCLA B team. Uh, so you can follow it. Twitter is the primary way which we interact with people. Um, we're always looking for people to join the conversation about UCLA football or the wider college football conversation. Uh, and if we're a gateway to having that conversation, that's awesome. And you can find uh, our podcast and the What's Brewing Network in general, wherever you find podcasts. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all the rest. So yeah, we're, uh, we're looking forward to anyone and everyone who wants to join the conversation with us. And uh, we have a good time with it. And uh, we think that you'll enjoy it as well. All right. Thanks, man. Pleasure. You're going to join us for some college football talk this year, right? Absolutely. Let's do it, man. (laughs) All right, guys, that's going to do it for the show today. Make sure you guys go and follow the B team podcast, all the stuff that Michael said uh, at the end of the show there. And uh, once again, thank you for listening and please go rate, review, subscribe, and enjoy our week zero of college football, Nebraska, Illinois, coming up noon, at least where I'm at noon. Then after that, you have the UCLA Bruins and Hawaii and a few other games. So go ahead and enjoy that, guys. Thanks a lot for listening. I'll see you next time.